Hello and welcome to a special edition of For Faith and Family with Dr. Richard Land. I'm Harold Harper, and today we're excited to have back to the program Ben Stein as we discuss his film documentary, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, which has just been released on DVD. Now, many of you may recognize Ben Stein from the 1986 movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off or the late 90s quiz show Win Ben Stein's Money or his regular appearances on the Fox News Channel. And in addition to his on-screen ventures, Ben Stein's resume includes time as a poverty lawyer, civil rights activist, and a White House speechwriter. And somewhere in all of that, he found time to author 16 books. And his film project, Expelled, ruffled all kinds of feathers in the bastions of the scientific and academic elite when it was released in theaters. So you don't want to miss this compelling DVD. This is Richard Land. I want to welcome you to our program today. We have a very special guest, Ben Stein. Ben, welcome to our program. It is my pleasure, sir. Well, we've just finished watching a screening here at Opryland at the National Religious Broadcasters of your new movie, Expelled. I want to congratulate you. It is a riveting movie. Well, you're very kind. It's, I have to take exception to your saying it's my movie. I'm one small part of a very wonderful team. We're at led by uh, Walt Ruloff and John Sullivan, Logan Kraft, and many other fine people. But it, we hope it's pretty good, and we hope people pay attention uh, in both positive ways and, and, I'm afraid, in negative ways, too. We expect that. Well, first of all, tell us what it's about. Just it's give us about, a brief summary. It's about Darwinism and how Darwinism, which Darwin proposed as a hypothesis, has become a dictatorial totalitarian regime within big science and the academy of the united states of america colleges and universities and foundations and you cannot question it you cannot doubt it you cannot express the slightest quibble with it or you lose your grant you lose your job you lose your office you lose your friends sometimes you lose your family uh... you're expelled in other words we think that's a bad state of affairs in a free society and a society founded on the freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry. We think it's a bad situation in a society where we are desperate for answers to scientific questions. Uh, we think especially it's intellectually dishonest because Darwinism does not explain very much. Uh, I don't know where you're from, but I'm from Washington, D.C. And uh, if you were to say to a Darwinist, well, how do you get from uh, Washington, D.C. to New York? Uh, he might say... Uh, well, you take the New Jersey Turnpike. All right, well, the New Jersey Turnpike takes you a little bit of the way, but there's also the Beltway, there's also Route 50, there's also Route 95, there's also the McHenry Tunnel. There's just a lot of different parts of the road. Uh, it is possible that evolutionism explains changes within species. I, I have no doubt about that, frankly. But does it explain where life came from? No. Does it explain where matter came from? No. Does it explain where energy came from? No. Does it explain uh, how any single mammalian species ever got to be there? No. Does it explain uh, where uh, gravity comes from? No. Physics? No. Thermodynamics? No. Does it explain any of those things? So it's a theory which, at best, explains a very teeny part of the puzzle. Well, that's exactly right. You know, I, whenever I'm asked about it, do I believe in evolution? I said, well, what do you mean by evolution? Mm -hmm. If you mean evolution within species, yeah. Yeah, but I But if do you're too. talking about that from nothing came something, and it's gotten to where we are now, the Darwinian theory of evolutionary origins, no, I don't believe that, and it takes a great deal more faith than I have to believe that. Well, I, I, I always say, and I appreciate your saying that, I always appreciate, uh, I always 
I'm sort of amazed when people say, oh, Darwin has the answer to everything. Well, Darwin didn't even pretend he had the answer to everything. I mean, if you, if you were interviewing Charles Darwin now, he'd be saying, sir, Mr. Land, uh, with all due respect, I claimed a little teeny, tiny bit of an explanation. I didn't explain much more than that, and my explanation might be wrong at that. But his followers have taken it to uh, include all of human life. You know, it's like, it, it's funny. Uh, almost at the same time Darwinism was created, communism was created. And the founders of communism said, uh, well, we think this is a theory about how, how all of human life works. And they were very arrogant about it. Darwin was very modest about his theory, but his followers have become like communists in the sense, they're not communists, but in the sense that they believe their theory explains everything. Communism didn't explain much, and neither does Darwinism, as far as I can tell. Now, I could be wrong. I want to say that. I could be wrong. I'm wrong about a heck of a lot. I'd like to hear the Darwinists say the same thing. We admit we could be wrong. We are wrong about a heck of a lot. We could be wrong about this, too. Well, I, yeah, I want to ask you a question that, that uh, will we'll, uh, we'll ask you to speculate. Whenever the scientific establishment, which is Darwinian to the core, Whenever the phrase intelligent design or any alternative theory of explanations is even posited, they act like a bunch of old ladies who just saw a white mouse run into the room. They jump up on the chairs and pull their dresses up and scream and yell. What are they afraid of? Well, uh, how about losing their jobs? How about losing their prestige? How about losing the doctrine that got them their jobs and their prestige and their paycheck? How about being uh, found to have been following a false god all these years? I mean, Darwinism, for a Darwinist who's gotten a prestigious university position or is selling lots of books, is everything. Darwinism is everything. I mean, you might as well say, well, how important is communism to a guy who is the member of the Politburo in the Soviet Union? Very important. So that's what they're scared of. But, but if they're so certain they're right... Why See, not debate? Why, why not debate it? See, it seems yeah, to me because that they're they, not certain they're right. That's right. I mean, it seems to me that underlying this is a, is almost a spirit of insecurity and fear that they know, they know that there wrong. are major holes in their supposedly. Oh, I mean, these guys theory. are not these guys are not idiots. Although it is possible to talk yourself into anything. I mean, I am sure that there were communists in the Politburo who truly believed that Marx, Engels, and Lenin had explained everything about human life. But most of them knew it was just a meal ticket. And I think a lot of the Darwinists know it's just a very nice meal ticket. You are a person who has reached a stage of success in life that you can spend your time on the projects that interest you. So wh how did you first get interested in well, this? Well, I am not that advanced a stage. I have to mostly spend my time at projects that pay my wife's MasterCard bill. But I, I got interested in it because um, I had always been extremely wary of Darwinism as a social phenomenon because I knew it had led to social Darwinism and that had led to Nazism and to the Holocaust and the extermination of six million Jews, including three of my cousins. So uh, I, I was always wary of Darwinism about that. But then as I started, when I met Walt Ruloff and uh, John Sullivan and Dr. Meyer, and I started talking to them about the scientific meaning of Darwinism and how incredibly unlikely it was that Darwinism as a scientific theory could hold water. I just I thought, I thought suddenly, wow, the emperor's got no clothes. This whole thing is crazy. I mean, what what's going on here? 
Darwinism doesn't explain anything about where, where life started. Darwin didn't even pretend that it did. So what are you guys talking about saying we can't discuss anything but Darwinism? Darwin himself would have let you talk about, about uh, other explanations. So let's uh, go out and say to the people, people, uh, we hate to break this to you, but the emperor has no clothes, and let's try to find him some clothes. If it turns out that intelligent design is correct as to one little part, which is that the cell can not only change through random mutation and natural selection, but also through adaptation. Uh, if it turns out there is a software code in the cell that the, the cell can rewrite in response to different conditions, that gives us a big leg up on curing cancer or, prevent, or preventing cancer. That's an incredibly important thing to do. Rather than just uh, say hosannas to Darwin, let's try to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, we were always taught that the scientific method was the pursuit of truth and that no questions were finally answered. And, you know, this is... Well the, put, well put. And this disconnect that we have. I mean, I went to a public high school in Houston, Texas. Too. And I was taught Darwinian theory as fact. And I almost, think I was too, although I think, I think, you know, it's interesting. How old are you? I'm 61. I'm 63. I went to school in Maryland, and I think our teachers said, I could be wrong about this, and my mind might be playing tricks on me, my memory might be. I think our teachers said God created the earth, and then after that it started to evolve. Mm. But um, certainly you could never hear that in a classroom now. Well, my biology professor uh, in 1963 in a public high school in Houston, Texas, was a, was an absolutely convinced and arrogant atheist evolutionist. Well, my teacher was Mr. Michelson, and he was a really, really nice guy, and I think he would have had an open mind about everything. But anyway, um, I would lo- love to see, let, let me pursue this, I, I, I think if the ordinary citizen knew that the school boards are trying to ram Darwinism down the kids' throats, but Darwinism, even if you take every word of Darwin as gospel, doesn't explain more than a tiny percentage of creation, a tiny percentage, I think that the parents would be outraged and say, cut it out. We want, we don't want you ramming this ridiculous theory down our kid's throat. I mean, okay, fine. Teach it as a theory that explains mm-hmm. 1% of what's going on, but please don't try to tell our kids what's going on when you know it isn't. Well, what fascinates me is virtually, you know, let's say, Probably 85% of the people in America went to public high school. Well, a least, vast percentage of them were taught Darwinian theory as fact, and yet 60% of Americans don't believe it. This is what drives the establishment crazy, because, because the they just don't believe it. The establishment would love to get Americans to stop believing in God, because if they could start getting them to stop believing in God, then the powers that be could have total control over the minds of Americans. I mean, in George Orwell's world, the ultimate crime was thought crime. Mm-hmm. Not breaking into a store and robbing it. Not murdering someone. Certainly not raping someone. But thought crime was the mother of all crimes. And what the Darwinists are really saying is if you question Darwinism, you're committing thought crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, in a phrase in the, in, the, in the movie where you say that Dr. Sternberg published this paper by Stephen Meyer that said that there might be the possibility that intelligent design might provide an explanation for this irreducible complexity. Tell you yeah. about Dr. Yeah. Sternberg. Please. Dr. Sternberg is a nice, smart, mild-mannered guy. He's got a beautiful, beautiful wife from somewhere in South America. 
He is a scientist at the Smithsonian, which is one of the great assets scientifically of the United States of America. He is the editor of a magazine there about biology. He was sent a paper by Dr. Stephen Meyer, who's an incredibly smart biologist, and just an incredibly smart guy. And it was about the possibility of intelligent design, just the possibility. And he thought it was a good paper. Dr. Uh, Dr. Sternberg thought it was a good paper. He circulated it to a number of scientists. They said it's a pretty good paper, and uh, let's publish it. So it was, in other words, it was peer-reviewed, which is the gold standard for academic papers. They published it. All kinds of people yelled and screamed. Uh, they criticized him. They took away his office. They put him in a back room of a cubbyhole somewhere. And he said, but wait a minute. This was peer-reviewed. What are you yelling at me for? They said, oh, you're an intellectual terrorist. So uh, th this happened to this guy, and his life was pretty much torn to pieces. A very brave United States congressman named Congressman Souter did an investigation of it, found that there was a conspiracy to get this guy within the Smithsonian. And uh, it's a tragedy. It's, a, it's just unbelievably bad what happened to this guy. And uh, we, we talked to him, talked to Dr. Sternberg, we talked to Dr. Meyer. It's just uh, pure intellectual terrorism against them. And it's suppression, and that's what our movie's about in large part, academic suppression. And uh, it's very, very upsetting in a free society. Well, it is. Sorry and to it, give you such a long answer. Well, no, it is upsetting, and it's almost Orwellian. It is very much Orwellian. It's not almost Orwellian, Richard. It's well, Orwellian. Now we have a trial in Pennsylvania where a federal judge is going to adjudicate what is what science. Is science. I I mean, know. What, now, you're a lawyer. What, what, what do judges and lawyers know about what makes science? And anyway, anyway, what is a court doing deciding that? What on earth is a court doing deciding that? And the, the scientists and the people in the, in the county and the town who wanted to say what should be taught in the school, they're the ones who should decide this. It shouldn't be up to a court. I mean, you know, is a court going to say, oh, uh, Ben, you're not allowed to say that uh, because that's not politically correct? Yeah. Essentially, that's a, the court now has set up political correctness standards, and that's outrageous. And this is a very, very dangerous portent of what is to come for believers, because it's not going to be long before the, these same people try to shut down private schools, shut down homeschooling. That's all coming down the track. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, I, I just read the other day that a court in California has said that if uh, parents want to homeschool, the teach the, the parents have to be certified I know, as teachers. I know, which is absolutely insane, and it totally destroys the whole basis of homeschooling. That's right, and I'm hopeful that it's going to be appealed, and they will lose at the Supreme Court level. But why is it in court at all? It is a way of trying to take freedoms away from people. See, we have a constant push in human life and pull. There's some people who want more freedom and trust people to do all right with freedom. We have Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Adams, George Washington in that category. Then we have people like Stalin, Hitler, Lenin, Marx in the other category who want to take away freedom. I'm, I'm sorry to say that we have a lot of people in the category of those who want to take away freedom in this great country. This is Richard Land, and you're listening to our program today. We're interviewing Ben Stein, who has just come out with a new movie called Expelled that shows the closed-mindedness and, and actually the terror tactics, the intellectual terror tactics of the scientific establishment against anyone who challenges the reigning theory that they want to present as fact, 
called Darwinian evolution. Well, not, it's not just Darwinian, Richard. It's neo-Darwinian, because mm-hmm. Darwin himself, as I've said now a mm-hmm. couple of times, he was an open-minded, broad-minded guy. He was a genius. There's no two ways mm-hmm. about that. He got a lot of things wrong, and he was a stupendously racist guy. But he was in the category of very, very smart people. Today's followers of Darwin, they're little dictators. Well, it's, it, isn't that the way? Yes. Um, um, Freudians go way beyond Sigmund Freud. Uh, Marxists went beyond Marx. Um, Darwinians go beyond Darwin. But the Marx himself was a really bad guy who had no problem with the idea of killing people right and left. Darwin, I think, was a terrible racist, but I don't think he would have approved of mass murder. Um, some of his friends, yes, like H.G. Wells, who was a friend and a came along later, but was a friend and uh, admire, I should say admirer. He believed in mass murder, but Darwin himself didn't. But uh, boy, his followers sure did, including one Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. People don't really want to know a lot about the eugenics movement. No, and and because America was a very big America, and Americans were a very big proponent of the eugenics movement, state fairs and all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. And there's no question that National Socialism was the most rigorous attempt to apply the theories of, of social Darwinism to uh, a society that has yet been attempted. Well, uh, yes, very rigorous, and also, uh, but they thought they were scientifically up to the minute. I mean, they, they didn't think that they were... Uh, Butchers, they thought they were doing mankind a favor. They thought they were going to create the best possible mankind. And uh, that would be a mankind without Jews, without Eastern Europeans, uh, without uh, anybody who didn't really look great, although, uh, of course, plenty of them didn't look too great. But anyway, um, they thought they were scientists. And, in fact, uh, when people say to me, oh, but science this, science that, and I always say to them, you know what, last time I looked, Science was telling my cousins to go left into the gas chambers. So that's where science tells, takes you. Not all science. Obviously, a lot of science is great and solves terrible problems of health and saves lives and gives us the automobile and gasoline and air conditioning. But when you let science rule over human decency, then you're in real trouble. That's right. If you let the people in the white coats make the decisions about what's right and what's wrong, that's above their pay grade. Way above their pay grade. And, and if, you don't, if you don't have any governance over what they may and may not do, anything will be tried. And they will do anything, if they don't have any moral or ethical parameters, eventually anything that can be done will be done. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this over and over again Absolutely. In, in totalitarian societies Absolutely. and in societies that have lost their moral compass. And to me, the most chilling moment in Expelled was your experience at Hadamar. Talk to us about what Hadamar was and this incredible response you got from your your very uh, erudite and well-educated guide who obviously had a demagnetized moral compass. Well put, indeed. Richard, um, we went to this uh, killing center in a beautiful town on a little river uh, near Frankfurt, and uh, it's uh, and Frankfurt, by the way, is a very, very cosmopolitan, big, giant financial center, and has very good food and wine and so forth. But anyway, you go a little ways from there, and you come to Hadamar, picturesque town. Used to have a mental hospital there. Nazis took it over and made it into a killing center, 
where they killed people who were mentally retarded or who uh, were alcoholics or had trouble keeping their job or had been divorced too many times or his neighbors uh, had ratted on them and said they were not uh, productive citizens. Useless eaters, as the Fuhrer called them. And they took, the, the Nazis took those people, took them down the flight of steps, told them they were going to be given a shower and then sent into hospital, and then gassed them. Doctors and nurses, not fake doctors and nurses, playing doctors and nurses, real doctors and nurses made the decision. They gassed them, squished together like sardines. They gassed them. Then they took some of them and they cut their brains out to examine their brains to see what was going on with their brains to see if that might explain why they were unemployed so much. So I said to this uh, woman who was the, our guide there, I said, uh, what would you have to say if you could talk to the people who ran this? What would you say to them right now? And she said, oh, it would not be my place to say anything to them. And I said to her, do you think maybe the people who are running this place were more insane than the people they were working on and killing? And she said, oh, no, 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 they were just scientists following their scientific doctrine. And I said, well, what was their scientific doctrine? A combination of Malthusianism and Darwinism? And as I recall it, she said, no, just Darwinism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Oh, terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Just and, terrifying. Well, you know, when you read the interviews with the Nazi doctors that, 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 that were in the death camps, I mean, it's really frightening. I mean, they, they're not even, they don't even feel bad about no, it. No, no. They don't feel bad. There's a book called The Trial of the Germans, which is terrifying. They don't feel bad about it. They, they think they were really advancing the cause of knowledge and of mankind. I know. I know. It's, uh, it's, it shows you what happens when, 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 you have, when you create a society in which nothing is always wrong. Anything is possible. Yes, and you know, I kept thinking about during the during the movie. I kept thinking about Aldous Huxley's famous explanation for why the Darwinian theories gained acceptance in the social sciences before they gained acceptance in the hard oh, sciences. I'd love to hear this, please. Tell and he me. said, because if there is no God, we can live any way we want. Yes, to. exactly. We can do anything we want. There's no retribution. There's no punishment. There's no reward. Might as well do anything we want. I think that is how an awful lot of people do live now, and um, it's a terrible way to live. When I think of the wrongs that have been committed, supposedly in the interest of science, but really because people have a lot of hatred and envy and resentment in their hearts, and Darwinism basically says, well, not Darwinism, but Neo-Darwinism basically says it's fine. And Neo-Darwinism basically says, look, we're just robots controlled by our genes. Our genes just want to reproduce themselves. We don't have any free will. There is no such thing as, as, as thought. We're just programmed to reproduce our genes. That's all we're doing. And uh, we have no conscience, and conscience is a fake construct. Consciousness itself is a false construct. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. Well, it is. And it... Um it does lead to what happened in, in National Socialism in Germany, what happened in the Soviet Union. Yes, absolutely. What, what happened, happened in, in Mao, China, China. Yeah, what absolutely. happened in Cambodia. We, we all forget, by the way, we all forget that China probably killed the most of its own people that any country ever has. That's right. And we don't even think about that. All we think about is how can I get a cheap toaster from China. Well, Expelled is a wonderful movie. I think that it's it should be required viewing. Well, you're very kind. For anyone who wants to, to understand what's going on and what's at stake in the debate um, uh, over worldviews in this society. 
This is Richard Land, and we want to welcome you back to our program today. We have Ben Stein with us again today. And, Ben, you have uh, just um, uh, finished this wonderful movie, Expelled, um, which really takes on the scientific establishment. Welcome back. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, I, I know some of our people will want to know more about you. Oh, let's talk about that. Well, let's let's yeah. Tell us tell us about me because you know you've got an interesting background. I mean, first of all, um, you are not the kind of person that some people would expect to be taking this this subject on. Uh, you graduated from Columbia University. You graduated as valedictorian from Yale Law School in 1970. I want to be honest about this here, Richard. Yeah. I was elected by my classmates to be valedictorian. Okay. I did not have the highest grades in the class by a long shot, but I was elected to be valedictorian. Well, in any event, you were valedictorian, yes. Yes. and you were you were a poverty lawyer in New Haven and in mm. Washington, D.C. You uh, were involved in the civil rights movement. Very much so, yes. Uh, as an activist, Yes, and, and, I uh, And did. then yes. you became a speechwriter for Richard Nixon. Well, Nixon was a big civil rights guy. Now, it's was. interesting. Nixon was a very interesting guy in this area because he he saw what George Wallace had been able to do. He was absolutely bowled over by what George Wallace was able to do. Was able to, and, and let's re- remind some of our younger listeners what Wallace was able to do was get, what was it, 10 million votes uh, in 1968 as an independent candidate. I think, actually, if I may say so, he might have gotten 11 or 12 million. Wallace was the governor of Alabama, Alabama and he was uh, had been quite a moderate guy, but he saw that the political winds were blowing towards extreme resistance to integration. He became an arch-segregationist, an arch-racist, and... Uh, he brought that message to Alabama with overwhelmingly good results for him, for electorally. I mean, obviously, it's a morally bad message. Uh, they then took it all across the country, and he was winning states that nobody would have dreamed. Indiana. Wisconsin, yeah, yeah, Michigan. I, know, I, know. I mean, he, all, he didn't win well, Wisconsin, but he almost won Michigan. He won Maryland. Maryland. He won. Uh, just he was just rolling up victory. After well, I, I tell people this, you know, if George Wallace could get that many votes in 1968 in America, Hitler got a third of the vote in 1932 in the middle of a depression. Well, let's be fair here, if we may. It's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. I'm sure it's not hard for you to do. Wallace wasn't Hitler. I mean, when he once he left the Deep South. When he was talking in uh, Maryland or Wisconsin or Michigan, he was talking about uh, states' rights. And stuff, but everybody knew that was code for cracking down on the black people. Um, he did so well, it was unbelievable. And by the way, I would like to just tell you, just between us girls, I think if another George Wallace came along with a similar message, he could get a lot of traction today, too, because I think there's still a lot of racial anger simmering just below the surface in this country. No, not anything like what there was, but but a lot still. Well, I hope you're wrong. Well, I hope I'm wrong, too. I've got to interrupt us to say this. We're, we're talking from Nashville, mm-hmm. a beautiful, wonderful city. Last night, uh, we went with some people from the uh, government of uh, this beautiful state of Tennessee to... Uh, a, the the Nashville Public Library, beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. building. They were having an exhibit of photos of the civil rights demonstrations in Nashville in the 60s, early 60s. Poor black people getting their brains beat in for trying to get a hamburger at a diner. Poor black people getting their heads beat in for trying to get service at a lunch counter at some dumpy restaurant. Then... We go across the street and have dinner at Morton's, which is probably the most expensive restaurant in Nashville, certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. And 
who's there but largely black people who are largely big officials and powerful officials in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And they're there laughing and joking and with white people, and they're all getting along great together, much better than they would get along in Beverly Hills. And I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, it's only been 44 years since those pictures were taken, and look at the change in Tennessee. What a testament to man's achievement, and what a testament to the fact that Darwin was totally wrong, and there are no superior or inferior races, that in fact... If you give people a chance, educate them, open the doors for them, expect more of them, give them high expectations instead of low expectations, they can do anything. And I thought to myself, Darwin would be stupefied mm -hmm. by what he saw, but if I may say so, Jesus would be very, very happy. He would. And, and uh, of course, I, I, I used your, the example you've just vividly described to explain that, you know, people say you can't legislate morality. Laws make a difference. Make a the, huge the South in 1970, the South was the most segregated region of the country in enrollment and housing patterns. And as you know, the civil rights laws applied to the 13 states that had systemic patterns of discrimination in ways they didn't apply to the other 30, 37 states. As a result of those civil rights laws, by 1990, the South had gone from being the most segregated part of the country to being the most integrated part of the country in terms of its housing patterns and in terms of its enrollment patterns. And I would argue that the Civil Rights Revolution has been a bigger success in the South than anywhere else. There's no question that you're right, Richard. You know, Martin Luther King, Jr., the greatest man of my era, said, morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. And... Uh, and 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 this behavior has been regulated. He said, "The law cannot teach a man to love me. Morality and religion and education have to do that, but the law can stop him from lynching me." And I think that's something. And that is exactly what the law has done. And that's incredibly, unbelievably important. It is. It is. Um, okay. So, Ben Stein goes to work at the White House for Richard Nixon. How how do you go from being? I, I know Nixon was a progressive on civil rights. He was. Fairly progressive. He pretended that he was very sympathetic to the states' rights people, and he had the Southern mm -hmm. strategy, which was he was going to scoop up all the white voters who had been alienated by the Civil Rights Acts of Lyndon Johnson, and he did scoop them up. But, in fact, he once he got into office, he was very aggressive at liquidating the last holdouts, holdouts of school segregation. And, file, and, and also filed the first uh, desegregation suit outside the South. Oh, I didn't know that. The Mitchell Justice Department filed the first desegregation suit outside. Where was that? Uh, I believe it was in Michigan. You know, as you say it, I, I'm getting a vague recollection of it. That's right. And it caused all kinds of yeah. uproar. Yeah, and and by the way, as we were saying a few minutes ago, and Wallace won Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I think, by the way, if Wallace hadn't been shot in 72, I think he would have been a huge factor in the election. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge. And, you know, he... Um, if if you go to Alabama, we digress here, but if you go to Alabama today, I didn't live in the Deep South in the 60s. I lived in Texas, which was different. Mm -hmm. But I'm told there wasn't much difference between Alabama and Mississippi. I don't think there was. Today, it's like two different worlds. Alabama and, is amazing. Go to downtown mm -hmm. Birmingham. It's thoroughly integrated. Go down and to the, the difference good is Wallace. They're all thoroughly integrated. The difference is yes. Wallace because Wallace apologized and said he was wrong. Right. And, and no one in Mississippi 
in the establishment has ever said that. But Mississippi has changed too, Richard. I mean, well, it has changed. Mississippi it's, has you, it's it's a light years behind Alabama, but it's catching up. Mississippi, mm-hmm. they're all catching up. The whole glory of the human rights revolution in America has yet to be revealed, but it's marching right mm-hmm. along. It is so glorious to see it. It is so glorious. I, I grew up, see, I, we've established now, I'm two years older than you, so I'm the old guy here. The, the I grew up in Maryland, which was nowhere near as segregated a state as, as either of those states, not even close. But even so, our schools are segregated. And uh, it was nauseating to think, of the names that our teachers and my fellow students called black people. Just to think of what they called them, which just made me sick. And now uh, we have so much equality of opportunity, it's just a miracle. Mm-hmm. You're right. And, it's, uh, and, you know, Wallace, of course, is a particular tragedy because he ran as a racial moderate the first time and he got beat. I know. And so then he said, I'll never get, you know, I won't say what he said. Yeah, I but, know what he said. But he said he would never get out segregated again. Yeah. And uh, and it was scary. I mean, you know, it, it was frightening how much popular support he did have. It was amazing. It was amazing. And as I say, had he not been shot, I think uh, amazing things would have happened that would have turned the country upside down. I don't approve of people being shot, but it was probably better that he'd be taken out. But I, th- I think in terms of his moderating in his old age and after he'd been shot, uh, he was a huge factor in racial reconciliation mm-hmm. in Alabama, huge. And I, I think uh, in his later years became a genuinely great man. Well, and he won. He got more black votes yes. than his opponent did mm-hmm. the last time yes. he ran for I, governor. Yes, I think he, in his later years he was a genuinely great man. Now, Ben, I, I'm guessing that what what has happened in your life is that you, <clears throat> from a period of being more liberal, when you were in college and in law school, you have moderated some. Well, it's not so much that because um, I, I yeah no, it probably is that you're probably right. It is that, but I, I think uh, I was always a believer in God. Though there, I, there's never been a time in my life when I haven't been a believer in God. Now it is hard for a Jew to be a believer in God because when you see what happened to the Jewish people over the course of history, you have to say, how could a loving God have allowed that? But uh, I have always believed in God, and I've always believed in a caring, loving God. Uh, and, and you know, I this is sort of what I find so amazing about the Darwinists, and wh- another reason why I wanted to work on the movie Expelled, mm-hmm. No Intelligence Allowed, is I just don't understand how people can believe they're in charge of the world, they're in charge of what happens to them. I mean, when each one of us in this room, there are just a few of us in this room right now because we're doing a radio show, but each one of us in this room looks back over his or her life and says, how much of it did I plan? How much of it did I control? And how much of it just happened to me by the grace of a loving God? Look, you said we were born on third base and thought we hit a triple. Every American has had that happen to him. And how can you explain that except by the grace of a loving God? How can you explain that? How can you explain the fact that we have penicillin and air conditioning and Novocaine when we go to the dentist. How can you explain that except in terms of a loving God? Well, I agree, and it's. Um, but there is, there is. You can understand the appeal. I mean, if you go back to the garden, this was the appeal in the I garden. I totally understand. You shall be as gods. Well, That's actually, right. it was. What part of the Bible is that from? No, Genesis think, one and you Genesis Genesis three. Actually, Genesis three. Uh, the devil comes to Eve and says, "God's lying to you." God's telling you that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, you will be like God. And God doesn't want anybody to be like him. 
So he was appealing to her the desire that, I mean, look, you know, when my oldest daughter was five years old, we were driving through Alabama, actually, on our way to Tennessee to visit my mother's, my uh, mother-in-law and my wife's family. And uh, we were singing every song we knew, trying to keep order in the car. We said, the king is coming, the king is coming. And so my, and my little girl says, what's a king? And uh, I said, I, I said uh, what I normally did to my children until they were at least 12 years old. You said, shut up. No, I said, ask <laughs> your kidding. mother. Ask uh, your mother, because my uh, wife had to translate all my answers anyway. Mm-hmm. So my wife said, well, honey, a king is somebody who tells you what to do. And my five-year-old, my sweet little five-year-old said, well, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I said, there it is. There's the sin nature alive in this little Mm five-year-old girl. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the human condition. Yes. And there's a deep wish in humans to not be responsible for their actions. I think that's more appropriate. We, We interviewed a very smart psychiatrist named Dr. Schwartz who said the whole basis of this fealty to Darwinism is if you believe in Darwinism and you believe you're not responsible uh, and there's nobody holding you responsible, there's no punishment, you can do anything you want, and a lot of people want to do anything they want. I don't want, you know, maybe it's because I'm old now, I don't want to do anything I want. Or I should say I want to do a lot less than I used to want to do, but I'd like to have it be not wrong. That's what I'd like to do. Well, I want to know the truth, and I want to live my life According to the truth. Well, we all want and, to know. And that, you know, if that if that truth makes certain demands on me, I still want to know what the truth is. We because, all want to know the truth. Know. Yep, we all want to know the truth. So, Ben, what what shocked you the most in the making of this movie? I think what shocked me the most was the incredible arrogance of the Darwinists uh, when, even when confronted with the obvious gigantic holes, flaws and lacunae in their theory, that uh, even when confronted with the fact that this is, to put it mildly, a highly incomplete theory, they were just as arrogant as ever. And that they they simply didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear any facts that contradicted their points of view. They just wanted to go on merrily being in charge. And and they're not used to being contradicted. No, 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 no. They're not used to being contradicted. Oh, no, no, no. When I talked to Dr. Dawkins... Uh, he was quite startled that I didn't just uh, get on my hands and knees and say how great he was. At least I think he was. I, I can't read his mind. But well, that's what I, I he thought. certainly gives every appearance yeah. of being um, impregnably arrogant. Well, he's pretty arrogant. And just, just as a viewpoint, I could be wrong. Now, at one point, the most shocking and also the most humorous thing that's in this film is your final interview with Richard Dawkins, where he is reduced rather than have an intelligent designer who might be God he's got people from he comes space. up with aliens from another universe yeah. tell yeah. us about that well I said to him uh, now Do- this is a law school tactic I used I said now Dr. Dawkins do you think there's no chance at all this I'm paraphrasing him there's no chance at all that there's uh, an intelligence that designed the earth no I wouldn't say no chance at all I said uh, well what would you say the percentage is it 1%? He said, yeah, it might be 1%. I said, could it be 3%? He said, yeah, it could be 3%. I said, could it be 49%? He said, no, it couldn't be that. And I said, well, how do you know it's 3% and not 49%? So anyway, so we went on from there, and he said, uh, well, uh, I said, well, if, if there is 1% or 3% chance, how did it happen? He said, well, it could have been people from outer space, cast superior intelligence, came and seeded the earth. And I said... 
where'd they come from? Uh, he couldn't answer that one, and, and he got kind of annoyed at me. I think by the end of the process, he was a little bit annoyed at me altogether, although I must say he kept his cool, and I actually invited him to dinner after the interview, and uh, he had to go back to his hometown. I forget whether it was Oxford or Cambridge. I think it was Oxford. 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 Yeah. And I'm, I'm an Oxford graduate, and oh, it, pains me to, it pains me to have to say this to you, but yes, he is a professor at Oxford. Well, he's a very famous and very successful and rich, rich professor. His books sell like crazy. They do, but I think sometimes people get a false impression from that because, you know, um, you've got uh, Dawkins' The God Delusion and you've got um, Harris's book and you've got uh, Christopher Hitchens' book, but if you take those books and their total sales and you stack them up against the sales of religious literature in the United yeah, States, they're very small, it becomes but, tiny, tiny yeah. little. I mean, they've got a, a, they've got a, a, much, um, a much less competition in their market share. Well, it's interesting. If you read those books, too, especially Dawkins' book, they're pretty thin gruel. I mean, there's not that much there. I mean, at one point, he quotes George Carlin, a comedian. I said, what is it? I said to him, uh, I don't think this actually made it into the interview. I said, I mean, into the film. I said, why are you, uh, why are you in a scientific book quoting George Carlin, a comedian? And he said something like, well, why not? Well, that, that's not much of an answer. No, it's not. When I first started investigating the intelligent design movement for myself, what, what I found intriguing was most of the people who are the driving force behind it are not people who are theologians. They're not people who are philosophers. They're, they're, they're young Turk scientists yeah. who have been uncowed right. by the scientific right. establishment right. and who are driven to this position by their research in the laboratory. Right. I mean, you read Michael Behe right. in, in Darwin's Black Box, and he was taught theistic evolution at the Catholic schools he attended. And so he, he was at least a theistic evolutionist, and he was driven to intelligent design by what he calls the irreducible complexity of this one little single-cell organism that he was studying. Right, and I, and I can easily see why he was driven to that. But see, I don't think you even need to go there, as I've said uh, to you before. I don't think you need to go to, is a cell irreducibly complex? Is some portion of a cell irreducibly complex? Is this or that life form irreducibly complex? Just ask one of these uh, materialistic evolutionists, where did gravity come from? Where did thermodynamics come from? Where did these laws and governing principles that govern the operation of life come from? I have a, a doctor, a very close friend, who's also my doctor, who's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man of science. And he says, if you get into the question of governing principles with these men and women, of course, uh, you, they just can't go anywhere. They have no traction whatsoever. None. Zero. They're just on slippery ground. Well, and if you look at the people who are challenging, the scientists who are challenging, they are disproportionately in certain fields. They're in biochemistry, they're in physics, and they're in mathematics. Well, astronomy, too. Astronomy and mathematics. I mean, you know, Dembski, basically, he says that you, you feed this material into a computer, and it says probability nil. Yes, yeah, probability. It just can't have happened. Yeah, can't have happened. Even over four and a half billion years, can't have happened. Now, it, it's uh, we've been. Uh, I think now I, I could be wrong. I want to emphasize I could be wrong. I'm often wrong, but it seems to me we've just been fed a, a lot of horse poopy, and we're being told that uh, that we should accept it as a scientific bedrock fact. People like Dawkins will say 
uh, well, you can no more question, I think he said this, might have been one of his friends, you can no more question Darwinism than you can question gravity. Well, we can see the results of gravity. You just throw a ball up in the air and it comes down and hits the ground. But can you see a species evolve? Can you see a life begin by a lightning striking a mud puddle? No. Excuse me, absolutely not. No, it's not, it's not empirically, uh, empirically proved and it's not intuitively obvious at all. Well, and if I remember the scientific method, there's something about you have to have replicable processes. Yes, you can't replicate, you can't replicate no, creation. No, can't replicate creation, and they can't replicate evolution of separate species. That's so right. they have nothing. But on the other hand, they have all the levers of power in the scientific community, and I'm sure they're going to make my life miserable. Well, they're going to probably try. That's right. They're going to probably try. try. But That's I suspect right. that you will enjoy it. I won't. I don't enjoy it when I get uh, hate mail. But I, I mean, I get hate mail saying you're an idiot, you're a jerk. Uh, I hate it. I got a a man from the Orlando Sentinel who compared me to a Holocaust denier. As a person who had three cousins killed by Hitler, I didn't like that very much. I was contemplating whether or not to sue him, but then I thought to myself, I, I, I don't. Lawsuits are not the answer. Okay, Ben Stein, what do you hope? will be accomplished by this movie. Opening people's eyes to the uh, dominance that the Darwin establishment, Darwinian establishment, Darwinist establishment has uh, the, to the power they have in the scientific community and to their stranglehold on uh, scientific thought and to their dictatorial ways in which they employ that power and uh, the, opening people's eyes to the flaws in Darwinism, the uh, lack of uh, scientific rigor and basis and extent in Darwinism and getting people to say, hey, we have got to stand up and try to get some new ideas in here and get some truth in here and let, at, at, at all costs, get some freedom of speech in here. Now, is it, a, is it, is there a website where people www.expelledthemovie.com and it's a very beautiful website with a great, great, great trailer. The movie will be everywhere. Main thing is go to it and tell your friends if you liked it. Do a mass email saying, friends, it's a movie I just saw. You'll love it. Well, as you've heard me say before, listeners, we all have a circle of influence. And within that circle of influence, you need to exercise your influence to get people to be aware of this movie, to talk to their circle of influence about this movie, and to go see this movie. This is one of these times when you can vote with your pocketbook. You can vote with your economic franchise, and Hollywood will listen when they see the dollar sign. Absolutely, absolutely. And and we and what we want to do is get a studio going, premise media that is going to bring out more and more and more movies to bring up some more truth in various cultural areas like this area and the sanctity of life is uh, one that's also on our radar screen. In case you just joined us, you're listening to For Faith and Family with Dr. Richard Land. I'm Harold Harper, and we've just heard a rather fascinating conversation with our guest, Ben Stein. For more information about Ben's movie, Expel, just visit our website at faithandfamily.com and be sure to click on the radio tab. You know, his movie exposes the ongoing censorship of intelligent design in the scientific and academic communities, and it's a movie you'll want to check out on DVD. Once again, for show notes, podcast, and free download of today's broadcast, just visit our website at faithandfamily.com and click on the radio tab.
For Faith and Family Radio is produced in Nashville, Tennessee by the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. For more information about our guest and past programs, please visit our website at faithandfamily.com. Our producer for today's broadcast is Amber Chesser. Our executive producer is Matt Hawkins. I'm Harold Harper, and I hope you'll join us again next time for For Faith and Family with Dr. Richard Land.